Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are in your neighborhood, ready to help personalize your insurance. And you can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. Visit statefarm.com today to get a great rate without sacrificing great service. That's statefarm.com. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Programming note. Before we go deep into Burma, I wanted to use this episode to catch up on a few battles and occupations I missed, namely the Marshall and Gilbert Islands, and of course, the Japanese coming at the Solomon Islands, which will set up the Guadalcanal campaign, and then focus a bit on Allied actions pertaining to Burma before the shooting starts, if all that can be fit into one episode. Be assured, soon we will go into the jungles of Burma. And for this episode, you will definitely want to keep the cover map by your side. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 291, America Strikes Back, The Marshals' Gilbert's Raids. When we left off with the invasion of New Guinea, the Japanese had landed and occupied Leh, Salamaua, and Finchhaven on the northeast coast on March 8th. In response, the Americans, in the form of Admiral Brown, with the carriers Lexington and Yorktown, and Australian bombers, hit the first two locations. But the wake of the destruction they left was less than stirring, which left the Japanese free to not only plan on coming around New Guinea's east coast to take Port Moresby on the southern coast, but also to extend their reach to the north. With Rabaul taken and made stronger day by day, the Japanese would launch raids against and occupy the islands to the north of Leh, specifically the Manus or Admiralty Islands. Manus is the largest of the 18 islands there, hence some use its name overall. Back during the Great War, Australia took the Admiralty Islands from Germany and was given a mandate for them soon after. As these islands were just north of New Guinea and New Britain in Japanese hands, they would act as another layer of protection for truck, home of the 4th Fleet, to the northeast of the Admiralties and with long-range land-based bombers being scattered throughout the Empire's new holdings, their ability to strike outward in all directions was increasing by hundreds of miles with each new possession. But backing up a bit, as the Japanese were putting up defensive rings around Rabaul to better help isolate New Guinea, which would in time help isolate Australia, a much wider ring had already been established just days after the attack on Pearl Harbor. On December 10, 1941, with the Americans on Ford Island still looking for survivors from the recent air raid and trying to identify too many bodies and body parts, which left them numb, the same emotion that was playing out back home, only to be replaced by anger, the now-declared enemy invaded and occupied the Gilbert Islands. Made up of a chain of 16 atolls and coral islands, of which Tarawa is the largest atoll, as the Gilbert Islands are located 
roughly halfway between Hawaii and New Guinea, about 1,555 miles or 2,500 kilometers east by northeast of Rabaul. The Japanese commanders wanted it to help shield their operations while protecting their southeastern flank. Further, this would be another step to cutting off Australia from the U.S. Unbeknownst to the Japanese, but guessing correctly, a few weeks after this occupation, the Australian Prime Minister, John Curtin, would ask the U.S. for aid to make up for what the British could not deliver. The American response was everything Canberra was hoping for. America, in the form of its naval leaders, altered its early war plans for the Pacific by making the sea lanes from Hawaii to Australia its second highest priority. Its first was keeping the passageway from the west coast to Hawaii open. And as this had the full backing of Admiral Ernest J. King, Chief of Naval Operations, it would be done. But that meant, after picking themselves up from the Pearl debacle, of going right back for the Gilbert Islands, as well as the Marshall and Solomon Islands. And this is what King would tell Admiral Chester Nimitz when he was sent out to Hawaii to take command. But that's for later. Again, the Japanese military leaders anticipated this and would counter by taking the Gilberts, which would help shield the Solomon Islands. But they would not stop here, for there were also plans to take islands to the south and southeast of the Gilberts, like New Caledonia, Fiji, and Samoa. Layers upon layers. And the Japanese were still assuming, at this stage, that the blood the Americans would have to spill of their own people to begin peeling back these layers would be too much for them. It was only a matter of time before talks would begin, and Japan would take its place among the great nations of the world. Hence, on December 10th, troops from the South Seas Detachment landed on Tarawa and Makan Island of the Gilbert Chain, practically unopposed. Right away, defensive positions were set up, and airfields would be built on the islands that were large enough to hold them, like on Makin and Batio, on the southern end of the Tarawa Atoll. Another stunning victory for the Empire. Another defeat for the Allies. As for the Marshall Islands, located approximately 220 miles or 350 kilometers northwest of the Gilbert Islands, in terms of the vast ocean, think halfway between Midway and New Guinea, and just south of Wake Island, they were already the possession of Japan, having obtained them from Germany, who lost all her Pacific territory after the Great War, as declared by the South Seas Mandate. Spread out over 29 coral atolls, comprising 1,156 individual islands, the Marshall Islands were considered an important base of operations to the Japanese. Hence, they were relatively well-protected with troops, planes, coastal guns, and ships. The Mariana Islands, or simply the Marianas, located even further to the northwest, so northwest of the Marshall and Gilbert Islands, and parallel with the northern tip of the Philippines, and about 1,400 miles or 2,250 kilometers west of Wake Island, 
shared the same fate as the Gilbert Islands. They had belonged to Germany, who lost them after World War I to Japan. Indeed, the Marianas had been used by the Japanese to launch attacks against Guam and Wake Island. Whereas the Caroline Islands, where the Japanese Fourth Fleet was based at Truk, to the southeast of the Marianas, were attacked and occupied by the Japanese during the Great War. As this island chain is due north of Rabaul, it played a part in the taking of New Britain and New Ireland. After the Great War, Japan was given a mandate for these islands by the League of Nations. But it would be a different matter when it came to the Solomon Islands, just off the southeast coast of New Ireland. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. Many historians claim that the Battle of Midway was the turning point in the Pacific War, and they are not wrong in many respects. Between Pearl Harbor and Midway, the question whether the carrier, with its numerous fighters, bombers, and torpedo bombers, had replaced the battleship in the main role of offensive power. That had been answered. But even after Midway, the Japanese Empire still had eight aircraft carriers doubling what the U.S. Pacific Fleet had, and the former vessels could carry 382 planes versus the 300 of the U.S. carriers. Further, after Midway, the Japanese Navy was still able to sink 11 major Allied ships, cruisers or larger, while losing nine of their own large ships during the Solomon Campaign, say roughly August of 42 until November of 44. After this period, the Japanese only managed to sink two more large American or Allied vessels, while losing dozens more of their own. Or, in the words of historian John Prados, even after Midway, the Japanese remained capable of giving as good as they got. Which leads to the, although less offered hypothesis, that the Solomon Islands campaign was the true turning point of the Pacific War. And beneath the mighty air and naval battles, not to mention the grueling island clashes for the Solomons, there was the less talked about advantages of Allied intelligence gathering. Indeed, all the Pacific Allies contributed mightily in this. In short, this allowed Admiral Nimitz to use, at first, a relatively smaller number amount of resources to draw a line in the sand that would be the Solomons, that the Japanese would not be allowed to go beyond. But it would be closer to the truth to say, in this multi-front war of the Pacific, the battles of the Coral Sea and Midway began the process of deterioration of the Empire's military capabilities. But it was in the Solomons that this became apparent to Tokyo. And all this began when the Japanese set out towards the Solomons 
after Rabaul had been secured. Bougainville Island, the largest of the Solomons, was first settled some 28,000 years ago. About 3,000 years ago, Austronesian people came to live there and brought domesticated animals. As for Europe's knowledge of the island's existence, that came in 1768, as the French explorer Louis Antoine de Bougainville landed there and named the island after himself. Though American and British whaling ships used the island as a stopover, it was officially claimed by the German Empire in 1899, becoming a part of German New Guinea. Yet during the Great War, Australia invaded and occupied Bougainville, which the League of Nations made official in 1920. But like New Britain and New Ireland, it was vastly undermanned by the Australians as tensions mounted between the United States and the Empire of Japan during 1941. As the Battle of Rabaul was practically over by February 9th, operations there wound down and improvements were begun for housing and the two airfields for the island's new owners. With that squared away, a section of the South Seas Detachment came at Bougainville on March 9, 1942. Though there were numerous islands within the Solomons, the invaders' priority was Bougainville, the largest, and Buka, the island just to its north. As for the white civilians among the Solomons, the vast majority had been evacuated in late December. Still, a few stayed behind, determined to evade the Japanese when they came, or to actively help the Allies by reporting what they saw to Canberra. Protecting the 1,400-foot-long airfield on Buka was about 20 soldiers of the Australian 1st Independent Company under the command of Lieutenant John H. Mackey. These men had been previously stationed at Caviang on New Ireland. As the Japanese attacked Buka with many more than that number, the Australians did not contest the invasion and made plans to retreat. However, among them were coastal watchers, Australians and local natives, and some of these brave souls would remain behind to send information back to Australia, while playing a deadly game of cat and mouse with the ever-aggressive Japanese troops stationed there. One of those was Jack Reed, an official of the Civil Administration, who had been quickly commissioned into the Royal Australian Navy. He was new to Bougainville, but had 12 years of service on New Guinea. Lieutenant Mackey would stay with him for about a year, sending in information while getting the help of natives to stay one step ahead of the enemy's special naval landing forces. To be sure, given the numerous islands, others would assist in gathering intelligence, like Paul Mason, an Australian who had been there for 20 years and who just happened to be a radio hobbyist. The perfect fit. Right away, the Japanese engineers got to work, constructing naval aircraft bases on the north, east, and south sides of Bougainville, and the airfield at Buka was also improved. On the south end of Bougainville, a naval anchorage was set up near Buin. It would be the largest one of the Solomons. Then, other islands nearby, like Treasury and Shortland, had airfields and naval bases built on them 
as well to hold more aircraft or to service any additional warships in the area. Over the next year, the Japanese would spread themselves out to the other islands of the Solomons. So by the time the Allies came in earnest to reclaim these islands in August of 42, there would be at least 45,000 Japanese troops to contend with. Still, even the Solomons were supposed to be jumping off points for further Japanese expansion by going after Samoa, Fiji, and the New Hebrides Islands. As stated previously, Admiral King had every intention of coming right back at the Japanese through the Gilbert, Marshall, and Solomon Islands, but the Pacific Fleet was nowhere near the strength needed for that. Yet. Still, that did not mean that raids on these areas were not possible. After all, the American carriers were still available, hence they would be used. But any raid had serious possible downsides. The Marshall Islands were just south of Wake Island, now a Japanese possession, and even worse, they and the Gilbert Islands, the other target of the first raid, were just northeast and southeast of Truk, respectively, where the enemy had significant naval and air forces. Still, something had to be done. The Japanese had to be taught that the Americans might be licking their wounds, but they were determined to see this bloody business through to the end, something that was already worrying Admiral Yamamoto. Hence, two of the three American Pacific carriers would be used in separate task forces. Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. The carriers Yorktown and Enterprise left Samoan waters, located to the southeast of the Gilbert Islands, on January 25th, heading northwest. Whether for good or ill, rain squalls accompanied the Americans. On the last day of January, the two task forces separated. Task Force 17 of the Yorktown and its support craft, commanded by Rear Admiral Frank Jack Fletcher, would hit Jaluit the seat of government for the Japanese Marshall Islands, as well as the Macon and Mili Atolls, on the most northern point of the Gilbert Islands. This left Task Force 8, centered around the Enterprise, commanded by Admiral William Halsey, to head further north to raid against Kwajalein, Woche, and the Maloelap Atoll on the Marshall Islands. As this was a raid, the Americans had little information to go on. Indeed, they were working with slightly updated German maps before the Great War. But hopefully, what they had, in terms of intelligence and attacking aircraft, would be enough. Before the sun rose on February 1st, the Yorktown's four destroyers were sent out ahead to form a scouting line. At 4.15 a.m., she launched 11 Douglas TBD-1 Devastator torpedo bombers and 17 Douglas SBD Dauntless Scout bombers. They were led by Commander Curtis W. Smiley. 
Unfortunately, the rain squalls had not left the Yorktown. Indeed, the attack group that went after Jaluit first had to deal with the tropical thunderstorm. But here, the Americans were not victorious. The formation was scattered by the rains and high winds. Still, as individuals, they went after what little they could see. The results were far from impressive, and for their pains, six aircraft would not return from Jaluit. From what is known, two scout bombers simply were never heard from again, while two torpedo bombers were forced to ditch off Jaluit. The crews made land, but they were taken prisoner by the Japanese. The last two torpedo bombers were spotted in the sea by other aircraft returning to Yorktown, and their locations were reported. As for those that made it back, many of them only had a few gallons of fuel left. Such was their fight against Mother Nature, not the Japanese. It went better for the Yorktown aircraft that went after enemy installations on the Makin Atoll. The skies were clearer. Hence the scout bombers decimated two Mavis flying boats and shot up a gunboat, the Nagata Maru. As for the planes that went after the Mili Atoll, the pilots there, unfortunately, found nothing worthy to attack. Right away, the Yorktown's destroyers were told to locate the crew of the two downed torpedo bombers. Soon, three of the escorts were come upon by a Japanese four-engine Mavis flying boat. To be sure, the Mavises were heavily armed, so had to be respected. What the Americans did not know was that this Mavis was only one of three that had taken off after the American raid was over, again showing what little damage they had inflicted. The Japanese reconnaissance plane dropped a bomb at the USS Sims, but missed by enough not to cause any damage. The Sims responded with intense anti-aircraft fire, which drove the enemy plane away. During this exchange, the destroyers radioed the Yorktown for air support. Soon, six F-4F Wildcat fighters were sent aloft. This Mavis got away, but at 1.07 p.m., a second Mavis showed up on Yorktown's radar, coming in from the east. As the plane came out of a cloud, she was only 15,000 yards from Yorktown. Yet the ship's batteries, nor those of her nearby escorts, opened up. This Mavis was to be dealt with by the air patrol of Wildcats just overhead. Just as the Mavis crossed the carrier's bow, ensigns E. Scott McCuskey and John P. Adams opened up simultaneously. McCuskey's tracers entered the enemy plane, near where the wings were attached to the fuselage. It exploded right away and began its fall into the sea. Excited, McCuskey yelled out over the radio, We just shot his ass off! When the two planes landed, the pilots were hailed as heroes, but then they were left alone and they talked, and they realized that they both felt bad about killing that Japanese aircrew. Yet this guilt only lasted a week for when they entered Pearl Harbor and saw the remaining devastation, that guilt was gone forever. As for Task Force 8 of Admiral Halsey, the airplanes of Enterprise attacked Kwajalein, Woche, and Taroa. 
While this was underway, some of his escort ships bombarded Woche and Taroa. When the Americans pulled away, there was moderate damage to the three islands' naval garrisons, and three small warships had been sunk, with damage inflicted to several others. In all, 15 enemy aircraft were destroyed on the ground. In exchange, the heavy cruiser USS Chester was damaged by a Japanese air counterstrike, and six of Enterprise's aircraft, five Dauntless dive bombers, and one F-4F Wildcat fighter, were lost. It was time for the Americans to go, as the hornet's nest had been stirred up. But Rear Admiral Fletcher, not knowing the extent of the damage done to the enemy, or lack thereof, wanted to go further. The last thing the enemy would expect was to be hit again. But Fletcher wanted to pull away a bit to hide, let the weather clear, and then go in again. It was this kind of tenacity that was needed. But before anything else could happen, Vice Admiral Halsey ordered Task Force 17 back to Pearl. By no means did the American naval officers believe that Pearl had been avenged. But that was not the goal of this raid. It was to affirm that the Americans were still in the fight, which was also what the American public needed to see and believe, as their productivity would be needed to make good the losses suffered on December 7th. As for reminding Yamamoto that his time to run wild was over, Nimitz was only getting started. But Tokyo also learned that their very destruction of the enemy's capital ships anchored at Ford Island exposed a general defensive weakness on their part, considering how their troops were scattered about. The Americans were forced to concentrate their forces, as they had not the means to do anything else, whereas the Japanese had spread themselves thin by quickly grabbing so much territory. And once that was done, a few airplanes or ships would be left behind to protect this new possession, or that one. Something had to be done to alter this. Hence, Yamamoto was in mind to force a decision by finding a way to get the American carriers into a do-or-die contest. And he would get his wish in early June at Midway. The Yorktown reached Pearl on February 6th. Her stores replenished. She headed out on February 14th, being ordered to join Admiral Halsey's Enterprise Task Force 8. They were to execute another raid, this on Wake Island, now in Japanese hands, and Japan's Minami Tori Island, also known as Marcus Island, about 1,848 kilometers or 1,148 miles southeast of Tokyo itself. Its proximity would again, hopefully, help re-establish America's naval might in the Pacific. Yet on the same day that she left, Admiral King counter-ordered the Yorktown to instead head to the South Pacific. Intelligence indicated that the enemy was about to occupy more territory in New Guinea or in the Solomons. And if it was the latter, it was decided that's where the United States was going to draw a line in the sand. Halsey's Task Force 8 sailed on alone to execute the next raid. 
And this harassment by American forces would go up a whole other level with the coming of the Doolittle Raid in mid-April. Conceived as early as January 10, 1942, by Navy Captain Francis S. Lowe, Assistant Chief of Staff for Anti-Submarine Warfare, when word of this got back to Admiral King and the President, both men jumped at the chance. Japan needed to feel the fear and uncertainty that Pearl caused for the Americans. And with the results of the Doolittle Raid, Yamamoto was more determined than ever to have it out with America's three Pacific carriers. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So I just wanted to thank some of the latest uh, members and people who have donated. Uh, there's more to the list, but um, I'll put it on the next episode. So I wanted to thank Melvin I., Stephen R., Neil P., Brian M., who is a recurring donator. Thank you very much. Uh, Stephen J., Bradley H. from somewhere down under. He's also a recurring donator. So, Bradley, thank you very much. Frank W., who donated and became a new member. So, he's my new best friend. Uh, John M., Brad W., Guy H., and Undumubra E., who's been a recurring donator for some time. So, I wanted to thank him as well. I'll list all the other people later. And I might have one more episode um, before we get deep into Burma, some of the stuff that the Americans and British, Chinese and Indians were doing uh, in Burma, trying to get ready for the coming attack. So I'm not sure. I might just squeeze it into the Burma episode. We'll see. But it's it's a lot of stuff before the shooting that I do not want to skip because it will play an important role later. We'll just see how it goes. So again, thank you for everyone who listens, who's donated, who's become a member. Um, oh, and one last thing. Um, I've decided not to do or bring on to the show any anyone who writes um, fictional World War II stories. Not that I don't respect what they do or enjoy the, the stories very much. I know they do a ton of research to be able to put uh, their characters into those settings. I certainly respect that. But there's enough exciting stories that are real in World War II, I think, to take care of um, telling this story in a rather dramatic fashion. That's my girls upstairs there. They've been home for three months, and I, I couldn't love them any more than I do at this moment. So um, I'll see you as soon as I can with the next uh, episode. And for members, I think an episode came out, was it a week ago, a couple days ago? So enjoy that. And I will, oh my God, I think they're actually roller skating in the living room upstairs above my office. Anyways, I apologize for that. So I will see you as soon as I can with the next episode. Take care, everyone. Yeah, they're still going. Oh, uh, P.S., if I may. Um, please, when you get a chance, check out my new website, uh, worldwar2podcast.net. Paul Finch gave it a new look, which I'm pretty excited about. And if any of you ever need help with websites or any of that technical stuff that I will never pretend to understand, he's a guy who can help you out. So you can always reach out to him at Paul V. Finch, that's V as in Victor, at gmail.com. I'm sure he can help you set something up and y'all can work something out. But great guy in Scotland and he knows what he's doing. So check out the website when you can. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the 
the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.